right, all right, all right. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Stamper Cinema. As always, I'm your host. My name is Andrew. Thank you very much for downloading this latest episode. And keeping along with our conversation of all things 90s for this month, I'm extremely, extremely honored to share my conversation with Mr. Andy Fry, who is a published uh, writer, author, podcaster. His work has been found in ESPN, Rolling Stone, currently with Forbes, and especially currently, he is the author of the novel 90 Days in the 90s, which I'm extremely excited. I keep saying extremely, but I'm super excited to uh, dive into. So, oh, and and for what it's worth, the bulk of this conversation, we'll be talking about 90s films and really shit, probably everything all 90s, because that's what we're doing this month. So let's just get that out of the way. Let's dive into this conversation. I can't wait to meet this guy. Let's have some fun. And so without further ado, please welcome to the show, Mr. Andy Fry. So Andy, again, thank you. Thank you so much for, for hopping on the podcast. How are you doing? Good. Uh, all good. I was just in uh, Orlando, Florida, where it was uh, about 50 degrees warmer than where it is where I live in Chicago. So, uh, you know, but I'm adjusting. I'm making it. Well, what were you doing in Orlando? I got, you know, I cover a little bit of golf. Um, so, I mean, some people know me from my book and my babbling about, you know, 90s pop culture and music and everything else that's... Uh, put a beer in me and we'll, I'll talk to you all night about it. But um, yeah, by, by trade, I'm a sports writer and I do kind of, you know, a lot of different sports, but uh, so I do golf and I tend to do um, golf in, in some, you know, kind of fits and starts anyway. So the, the LPGA tournament uh, season just started. So they start with an event in Orlando. If you didn't know Orlando is the capital of golf, just, you know, uh, some people don't know that I, I found that, but yeah, they had the LPGA or the HGV tournament of champions, so I was down there to cover golf and then also watch a bunch of celebrities play golf. So I got to interview uh, some sports legends and, um, you know, talk to people I've talked to before, like Annika Sorenstam and um, Roger Clemens, and then just watch some of the top women in the women's game, you know, play uh, play four rounds. And yeah, you do. That's awesome. I was also just in Orlando last week as well. So I was like, well, what was going on? Mm-hmm. And um, so I was down there for work. But even... I know it's a huge, I mean, it's kind of like a, yeah, the, like the big what to do for, for golf, but they just had like the big, like pro fest for English premier league soccer. So everybody was in Orlando this past weekend for that as well. But I'm really excited to chat with you. Obviously you've written 90 days in the nineties, which is a wonderful love letter to all things nineties. So I I, want to talk, I want to talk about that, about that novel. Thank you very much for, for getting in my hands. That was a fun read. Uh, I, I really don't want to make this entire interview about like, dude, that was fucking awesome. But thank you for for uh, passing that on to me because it, it really is. It's just a really fun read. So um, I guess the best way to kind of transition is to talk a little bit about about this novel. So what is 90 Days in the 90s for those that haven't read it? And again, Andy, thank you so much for uh, for. Yeah. For taking the time to chat with me about it. Yeah, it's uh, so I just turned 50 this year. I may not act like it most of the time, um, especially, you know, uh, yeah, Doug, if you started about what, what we might make jokes about, whether it's Beavis and Butthead episodes or just, you know, bathroom humor. But I am 50 and I do remember, you know, a lot of different parts of my life and different times, you know, kind of call, 
pop cultural blocks by decades. That's kind of how we think of decades, how we think of pop culture. And uh, yeah, the story's about um, a person, um, a woman named Darby, who's around about my age, uh, starts in the present roughly, and then uh, she moves back to Chicago where she you know, had once lived after kind of moving to New York, trying to make, and, and you know, having a successful career as uh, you know, sort of a Wall Street person. And then eventually, you know, things kind of fall apart. She comes back to Chicago to take over her favorite uncle's record store after he passes away. And she finds out that the Revolver Records is willed to her. So she comes back to Chicago, which we know, I know is a great city. I've, I've lived here my whole adult life pretty much. She gets a little nostalgic, kind of gets her uh, back into her old self in some ways, you know, kind of revisiting uh, her deep love of alternative music and also maybe being a little bit of a music snob, owning a record store, having music, you know, like record store type of people talking about music all day and um, discovers a way to get back to the 1990s, which is um, called the Gray Line. If you look at my my novel, there's a big train car in the front. And that's, uh, I guess you could just surmise that that is the, uh, the Gray Line. So we in Chicago, we have like the blue line takes the airport, the red line goes north and south. I just, I, I picked one of the colors that was left, I guess, that the Chicago Transit Authority had not taken and just kind of made up this train based on uh, another theme. You know, I can talk about it, I suppose, in detail when we get into this, if you want. But um, I think one theme that sticks out from the 1990s for me, along with the great music and the movies and, you know, whether you're into grunge or whether you're into EDM or whatever, um, was that that's kind of, at least, I think it's when Urban Legends came alive. There's even a movie, I think, called Urban Legends or Urban Myths yes. with um, you know, a bunch of youngsters in it. And uh, yeah, it was kind of the time we all got technology in our hands. We all got email, like our own email addresses. Um, I was in the workforce. I was like 24, probably 1986. So like, I remember when I got my own email at the company I was working at, bought my own computer, didn't get a cell phone until later. But I think what that really promoted was, uh, you know, just kind of a lot of hearsay and a lot of like, well, what if this happened? What, you know, maybe this is for tr- before, long before we got into election conspiracies and we're talking about whether the world was flat and all that nonsense that we're in now. <laughs> we just kind of talked about like, uh, you know, urban legends, like just kind of like the Mothman and the New Jersey Devil. And, you know, I, I decided to kind of make one up about Chicago that it seems fitting for anybody who's, who's lived here and knows a little bit about what it's like to kind of be a local. But anyway, so Darby, yeah, she tags onto the gray line. Finds out it goes back to the 1990s, goes back to the day that she actually moved away from Chicago, and but doesn't move away and kind of starts her adventure all over again and sort of a, a I guess a remedy to a midlife crisis in a way. Yeah, no, it, it's it, it's really fascinating. Everything that you just said, I I want to I want to like snowball and go in a myriad of different directions. So uh, bear with me because it's just me kind of really clang association like yep. on, on from where you said uh, at the uh, specific moment. So. All right. So one thing that that sticks out is when you mentioned like the 90s being a very, very specific time. And uh, what what I think about it is it's pre-millennium for one thing. Right. So it was that that last that last moment that we had before and granted, Internet existed. I mean, Al Gore <laughs> created. Right. Yeah. But um, the that that 90s was very, very like finite. It, it's the it was the end of, you know, a, a millennia. And it was very, very specific. And it was also the kind of the to use MTV. It was the, the like the final, really the final decade. Obviously, MTV was huge in the '80s and the '90s. It culminated, and then I, I don't know if it was like Kurt Cobain and his suicide that kind of yeah. was the, the the downfall really of MTV. That then became something completely different, and TRL was launched out of it, and and yeah. 
all sorts of different things happened. But what, and right now that's not even a question. I, I, there's just, it, it's a very, very specific decade to me. You said that you just turned 50 or you're turning 50. I'm 44, not to completely date myself, but we are seeing a lot of, I don't want to say nostalgia because that just makes me kind of like negative when I hear that word, but we are seeing this resurgence in in all things from that time, whether it's music, whether it's fashion, whether it's uh, cinema that people are kind of intrigued by that here locally, we've like relaunched one yeah. of like our big local radio stations going back to specifically nineties, nineties era. So I guess, I guess kind of what I'm curious about is other than being a, a Gen Xer, mm-hmm. what, what do you feel is specific about the nineties that, that it would resonate even today? Well, I think it's just, you know, I guess, because obviously we can't go back to the 90s. We can't really, and I'm not a sociologist. I'm not going to do a, a, you know, a, a dissertation on it. But what we do recognize is that it was a time of change. And maybe this is every decade. It's easiest to kind of bookend decades by, you know, by 10 years. But the 90s was very much um, a time when we went from not being digital to being digital. It, it went from mm-hmm. like picking up a newspaper or turning on the TV to hear a news story to really kind of a soundbite uh, type of media where, I mean, you know, I, I, I teach a social media class all the time and, uh, uh, on the side. And I, one of the, one of the uh, things I ask these now Gen Z kids is like, what was your first aha moment in social media? Meaning like, when did you first notice it? It happened, like it actually worked. It wasn't just some, you know, kind of throwaway thing. And I remember it wasn't even until like 2011 that I got it when I first heard that Osama bin Laden had been killed. I didn't read the newspaper. I didn't turn on the news. I picked up my phone. Actually, I think I went to bed early some for some reason that night. And I saw somebody posted a clip from the Phillies game. Uh, uh, I don't remember who the Phillies are playing, but ch- fans are cheering because Osama Bin is dead. And that was like how I found out about it on Twitter. I just picked up my phone, looked at Twitter. Um, so there was kind of the first glimpses of that in the 90s where we, we, we used to talk about what was called the 500 channel universe, where... You know, we went from 1979 and 80 where this show, this uh, this channel called ESPN is going to come up. Where are we going to come up with, like, enough sports to fill the day? Like, is there enough? Sport? Now there's ESPN, you know, ESPN2, uh, streaming channel ESPN3, and there's definitely more than enough sports to cover 24 hours a day. It wasn't even like, what do we do to, to come up with, um, you know, 12 hours of programming? So, yeah, I think uh, part of it was, you know, as people, we, we sort of turned our eyes and ears on to listen to more. We demanded more but media just kind of i don't know if it matured but it there was uh just an explosion of i guess interaction that you have to contribute that to the digital world uh the first of it happened in the 90s i do remember um just certain little i could talk about little things like um you know kind of the first when i first got an email literally within a month all the chain letters that i had gotten like in my mailbox from you know my hippie friend who moved out to california who stuck my name in there and gave someone my name and now I'm in a chain letter. Like I get the same, the same exact chain letter, but in an email. Right. Yeah. Really dude. Yeah. Really. You, you typed this thing out. Um, asked me, you want me to send it now to 20 other people before, so I don't get, you know, cast into a pit of hell. It was just, um, just a kind of a change of the behavior of, of us uh, being turned on as digital beings. And you obviously could make parallels now to the 2000, 2010s, 2022s, that how we behave as, 
is different than we did before because of X, Y, and Z, because we have this thing now. We have this, we have TikTok now, so we dance in front of a little screen. Whereas, um, you know, 10 years ago, we were calling into American Idol to voice our opinion about, you know, some god-awful, uh, terrible singer who's now famous. And before that, you know, we had like the local, you know, we might be able to call into, um, I don't know, uh, who's the comedian who used to do the telethons? Um, Jerry Lewis. Oh uh, yeah, Jerry yeah, Lewis. Lewis. Yeah, you Jerry can Lewis. call in and you talk to you know Jerry Lewis about something. Like you know, we've we've gone leaps and bounds through how we communicate, almost to the point that our heads are re- ready to blow off. But I think the '90s was kind of like when we saw the big swings and uh, just a lot of different. You know, we went started going to music fest. We started um, you know catching up with people, communicating digitally. Um, I, I, there's probably other examples I can think of, but uh, at the same time, you know, music changed and film changed. I think it sort of mimicked our behavior as to what we were doing every day that was different from, let's say, 1996 to 1981. Yeah, absolutely. So much of this book is very heavily influenced by music, right? I mean, this is this is such, I mean, it's a love letter to the time, but music is such a prominent theme throughout throughout the story. So I'm kind of curious, what what did you grow up listening to? What what, what, were, what was some of the music that, that you were into at this time, specifically in the 90s? Well, what, probably what I do know is, I mean, I, all kinds of music uh, and that you probably hear that, hear that from a lot of people, but yeah, like my first, probably the first, um, so when I first started paying attention to music that wasn't like Sesame Street music was like Queen was the biggest band in the world in 1980. Mm. Um, and, you know, we would like listen to it in like third grade. We'd sing We Are the Champions during field day week. You know, we had cool teachers, I guess. So it was just, it was so big that it wasn't, oh, that's that rock and roll stuff for kids. Like it was very per- pervasive. Queen was the first pervasive big band um, that I'd heard of. And, you know, fast forward to maybe when I was a disaffected teenager at age 14, 15, playing guitar, I picked up on Led Zeppelin. Uh, my cool aunt, Aunt Martha, knew I was trying to play guitar and knew I was like Led Zeppelin and actually taped me every vinyl Led Zeppelin album she had. So this big box showed up in the summer of 1985, I think it was, you know, from Led Zeppelin 1 at least to um, maybe Presence or one of the one of the labor, later mm. albums. So, um, but then, you know, like I grew up in the East Coast and earshot in every direction was college radio. And that probably, if you want, we could talk about um, sort of where, where we, how do we go from pop radio being, uh, let's say, Debbie Gibson and Bon Jovi to Nirvana and Alice in Chains. Right. Um, I think there was, it was more gradual than we give it credit for, but I listened to like, Princeton's radio station, because I guess I was close enough to Princeton University to hear the radio station and they would play, you know, Dinosaur Jr. and the Feelies and, you know, Husker Du and then this mm-hmm. band called the Pixies that I was also starting to hear on commercial radio in 1988 and also The Cure. Like I would hear, you know, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, which is a major, I think it was their first major, major label album, big giant success. It was all over commercial radio. But if I wanted to hear Boys Don't Cry, like I would listen to college radio station. Um, so that's kind of where I got stirred up and just kind of being cognizant of that there was something besides, you know, the artists that were on the radio that, um, I don't know, the, the Weekly Top 40 was talking about or or Dick Clark was talking about. And then when, you know, when I was in college in the early 90s and somewhere where, I mean, really, it wasn't a complete flick of the switch. But by 1991, when Nirvana, actually, it's funny, um, right after Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 came out they were number one and two in the charts within i think it was like i want to say that that was let's say that was august mid-august of of 1991 i want to say that 
Nevermind came out, or maybe the first single came out like August 23rd or 24th. It was pretty late in August, but six weeks later, it's, you know, they're the biggest band in the world and everything's Nirvana and grunge and, and alternative. And probably by the following spring, when I went home to suburban Philadelphia, I turn on, you know, the rock stations and they weren't playing, you know, um, Rat anymore. And they weren't mm-hmm. playing uh, as much Ozzy Osbourne. They're playing Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Change, some Liz Fair, like all kinds of different things. Um, you know, maybe like the next summer they play Liz Fair, Smashing Pumpkins, Baruch Assault, um, some some British music. And it was like, we don't have time anymore for the artists that don't, don't write their own songs, don't play their own instruments. Um, all of a sudden, I guess the major labels were interested in obviously where they could find the next Nirvana, but also that our generation, and you're kind of on the younger end of it, like we wanted something a little more authentic not just what we're told to listen to. So uh, I'm into everything. I mean, I, I could talk to you all day about second wave of ska. I could talk to you about British music, both, you know, trip hop and, you know, uh, descendants of the Beatles. I've talked about garage best rock. Trip band. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but uh, yeah. the best trip hop band. I think, um, well, I would have to say probably Mass Attack. There you go. That, that, that's the correct answer. I was just making Sneaker sure. This is, it was a test. It was a test. Sneaker Pimps is really underrated, though. Oh, my God. Sneaker Pimps are uh, wonderful. I mean, shit, I even lump Portishead into trip hop, even though yeah. I think the Portishead have kind of gone a different, you know, were always a little bit different, but yeah. there was something about it. But more sorry, any opportunity to, like, slide a Massive Attack oh. reference into a podcast, I'm going to do it. Yeah, I mean, we could talk, I could talk to you about um, the, the 12 different shades of uh, shoegazer, too. The point is that oh, yeah. <laughs> there's all this different music. I mean, so now that we have Spotify and, and iTunes, or I guess not iTunes, whatever it's called now, uh, we can do on Hyperspace what we would do in a record store, which some people still love to do, go through a record store, but you can listen to everything. I, mean, I do still buy albums, and I go to shows, and I know that my favorite bands, you know, whether it's L7 or Yo Mama, or if the Stone Roses got back together and st- stayed together and were touring again, I would you know, go to see them play because that's where they make their money and that's what I enjoy the most. But um, yeah, there's, I guess in the, the, the 90s really kind of let us, it, we are allowed to experience the great variety and breadth of music versus just listening to what was cool and what was popular. It was sort of like, uh, you know, I guess the nerds and the geeks and the people who knew too much about too many things took over the world. And I kind of enjoyed that time. Oh man. Um, Andy, I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying this because I, I had a list of questions, but now they're all out the fucking window. And I just want to like talk about all sorts of different stuff with you. How about you, um, you ask a couple and I'll try to actually like not go on for 10 minutes. Cause I want to no, know it's fine. But as you can see, like it's like two full pages because this is an opera. Like this is one of my favorite subject matters is yeah. well movies, but also, uh, being able to talk about 90s music, talk about, again, I love the novel. I, I, I want it like abundantly clear that, I mean, it was just, it's a fun ride and yeah. it's an easy, um, easy is a wrong word I want to use, but it goes quickly. It, it's a it's a quick read of, you know, a, a novel that has a few hundred pages. I mean, it's, it's but you you get you get invested and the, these are fun characters. You've got Darby, you got uh, Spacey. Actually, now that I think about it, um, I'm always fascinated as uh, as a writer myself. Where do you, where where does a name come from? So, yeah. uh, wh- you know, what were some of the inceptions behind? Was it just names out of a hat? Was Spacey yeah. inspired by Kevin Spacey? Like, wh- where, uh, where does this come from? I, well, I, you probably don't know. So, if you did a deep dive on my my um, journalistic sports writing work, you would find that I wrote for about four years about the sport called roller derby. And if you know anybody who's ever played roller derby, they have kind of an alternate name, a roller derby name. So, um, like my, my friend Val Capone, who 
I'm not going to say what her <laughs> real name is. She's she's a bartender here. She does, um, you know, like uh, used to run a beer stand at Wrigley. Like we call her Val. We don't call her, you know, what her other name is, just because we because I know her as like my my derby coat when I played, and just you know, it's it's sort of like, uh, yeah, I don't know what. Um, I don't remember what Nikki Six's real name was growing up. Oh, I feel like it was Vince no or something. Idea. I'm going to be like, hey, Vince, I'm, you know, I'm going to call him Nikki Six. So, um, yeah, when I was coming up with the characters, actually, Spacey was kind of the one that. Um, so, yeah, Darby owns this record store. She's got um, a couple of, you know, kind of like college age kids. And, you know, one's a metalhead and one's a, um, the metalheads. Uh, imagine like Lenny Kravitz, but taller. That's what um, the metalhead um, uh, the store looks like. It's just super cool. And then there's like the ironic dork hipster, you know, trying too hard with just, you know, ironically bad outfits. And, and then there's Spacey, who's just kind of like, imagine Billie Eilish working in your record store. That's kind of what Spacey's like. And right. I, I, um, you know, the thing is like when you're writing, obviously you're, you're writing fiction, you're making things up. You're kind of trying out scenes, you're trying out themes, you're trying to create people who kind of work well in what you want to write about. So long story short, I just kind of, they all evolved from like, I took a, maybe a quirk from a friend of mine um, who's kind of a writer, poet, type and he was sort of the i guess the idea behind spiro um darby's best friend mm. she loses mm. a touch with but then when she goes back to 90 the 1990s she reacquaints herself with him and, and it's to everybody who uh, that she's friends with when she comes back to 1996 they don't know she left because she actually comes back in time on the same day she moved away and kind of blew off everybody uh, but spacey was kind of like um I, I and maybe like the 11th draft or something i realized that i had this minor character and i kind of needed to give her a little bit more uh more of a say and it kind of i ended up making uh spacey an agent provocateur sort of in darby's whole continuum mm -hmm. and deciding to go back in time but yeah spacey was just kind of like i think i knew somebody who was named outer spacey and that was her derby name and i don't really want okay. to them and you know it just seemed cooler than like ashley or donna or something so uh <laughs> yeah you get stuck yeah. at least yeah you remember her name because her name's a little different but it sounds like a name but yeah, there's all like I love watching Beavis and Butthead. I think it's fitting that the uh, the ex-military teacher's name is Mister Buzzcut. At least that's what his name is. Joe, and he's the guy with the buzzcut who yells a lot, and you know has uh, you know probably flashbacks from Vietnam. Um, mm -hmm. I, don't know, you, I, I never took a creative writing course. Um, that's my dog squeaking with his toy in the background there. So he's uh, what type of dog? Yeah, I got my dog. He's hanging out here. What do you have? What type of dog? Oh, he's a black mouth cur. So he's like a medium sized, floppy eared, rust colored dog who's super nice. Friendly. I've got yeah. a, a 10 month old Irish setter hanging out in the next room. Yeah, dogs are great. There's no dogs in my novel, though. That's one one mistake I suppose I made. Maybe I'll have to write a, a novel with an included dog this time. But anyway, so there's all kinds of people that, um, what I was going to say about the novel is that, and this will get to our talk about movies. I'm I was really affected by a lot of the movies in the 90s where you feel like you were just hanging out with the people. In the in the movie, just give you a real quick example. I've never, I don't own a gun. I've never been a gangster, but when I'm watching Jules and Vincent in Pulp Fiction, after they go to you know those guys with the big Kahuna's burgers and you know like <laughs> essentially kidnap one of them after shooting another, like I kind of felt like I was just along for the ride with them. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel like wow, this is really foreign. I I don't know what's going on here. I'm just like hanging out with Jules and Vincent, like you were too. So I I went for that with my book, and I think it took a little while to kind of work out the. Uh, the uptightness in my writing, but I think that's probably, I hope that's why it reads well is that it's a very nineties thing. I think to just kind of let your hair down, loose up your shoulders, kind of go with the flow. <clears throat> and that's what I went for with the novel. I think I pulled it off mostly. And, and the music, the music super fandom, like you don't have to know everything about every band. If you just kind of hang out with the characters, that's what I was 
um, hoping for when I started this thing. Uh, thank you. Um, I mean, that kind of tackles the last question I had. Oh, actually, I've got several more for the book, but kind of like, what do you want the what do you want the reader to get out of it? Well, yeah, I just want the reader to um, <laughs> feel like you know you could be someone who doesn't care about '90s music. You could love Britney Spears, or you know, I'm sure that uh, if you read the book and you listen to the narrator, you will you will pick up on the fact that he does not like Celine Dion or Pesh Mode or the Dave Matthews Band. You could like all those bands, but also read the book and not feeling like you need to, you know, oh, I got to look up this. What's, what's this musical subgenre? It's all about tagging along with Darby, kind of going along for the ride and having some fun and sort of seeing what um, what it would like to travel, be, travel back in time and also sort of escape from the thing that always happens in time travel literature and in movies is that um, a lot of times the protagonist is presented with this like problem they got to solve. They got to like kill Hitler or you know, prevent the World Trade Center from collapsing or, or save their parents or make sure that they don't go out of existence because, um, you know, in like Back to the Future, the parents need to get together in the end. Um, I think probably most of us would go back and check out some, the, some place that we loved or go back in a time where we wanted to have fun and see if it was the same and see if we experienced it the same. And that's what I want people who read the novel to do, like enjoy the pop culture if you're into that, especially, but also realize you're just kind of tagging along for the ride and you can be as passive or as into it as you want and um, hopefully have fun along the way. Wonderful. This isn't even a question, but I just, actually, I guess it's kind of a question. Uh, You had mentioned like when Nirvana came out, how it kind of like changed the scene. I remember watching, I don't know if it was an interview or a documentary. And I I don't know if it was uh, Kurt or Dave Grohl, but they were talking about like when they came out, like the, the big albums at the time or the big songs that were like trending hardcore at the time you had, like Michael Bolton, you had like Michael Jackson and you had, uh, I think it was like Whitney Houston. And yeah. then like to a lesser extent, you had like um, like Guns N' Roses. And when they came out, you know, they they went to the uh, top of the charts, but basically it was the death of like hair metal. Like, so your, your winger, your warrant, your Guns N' Roses, not, I know that Guns N' Roses is more than a hair band, but yeah. it was... It, it was just like how like seeming seemingly or like seamlessly like overnight. Yeah. Everything completely changed when people heard smells like teen spirit for the first time. Yeah. So the, the one of the other bands that was brand new had just got a big record contract right when bells, right when nevermind came out was a, a band called U- ugly kid Joe. Yeah. And like yeah, if you yeah. in the summer, if you saw Wayne's world, like their, their song is in, I, mean, I can't remember which summer, but uh, they're they're I think like Candlebox, they sounded a little bit more like metal than definitely didn't sound like garage rock, that's for sure. Um, so if you kind of picked up on either lead singers with lower ranges, like you know, Eddie Vedder and you know, some of the some of the disciples of Pearl Jam, and even even to some degree Nirvana, and and that was what you wanted to hear. You and like you're saying, you completely tuned out, you were not going to be in any fashion interested in the next Skid Row album or and even the next Ugly Kid Joe album, even though they're, they're, they kind of came from, all right, I think they came from LA, San Diego or wherever, somewhere. So like, but, the, but basically from the indie scene too, they weren't, they weren't signed, you know, they weren't, uh, I don't know, protégés of Bon Jovi the way that Cinderella was. So, but the point is that, yeah, yeah completely retuned our ears to what was out there. But, you know, uh, I, th- I think we also realized like, well, I like this stuff by the Pixies and the Cure and the biggest hard rock band in the world in 1990, Living Color, these, you know, yeah, yeah. Guys from the Bronx, 
Um, that still fitted. And then like the Beastie Boys came back the next summer and they were still the Beastie Boys, but you know, they're playing instruments, they're being kind of them same, their same silly selves, but more kind of a downbeat. Um, you know, I don't they kind of grew into their age group, I guess, and played sort of garage rock rap. And right. I think it opened up the variety, but also kind of tuned out anything that did not sound authentic, anything that was too just came out too overly produced, too manufactured. Um, so I think that was there was a couple things going on there. There's no science to it. It's all kind of art and perfect timing. But yeah, definitely kind of uh, put out the fire in some subgenres of music. And uh, I guess with Whitney Houston, it was it must have been the theme song from The Bodyguard. I mean, that's still one of the like top selling singles. Yeah. The kind people who were going to be really into that and Amy Grant probably just were like, who's this Nirvana? What's going on with music? I don't, I don't I mean, know. Amy Grant, Baby Baby, or whatever that song was at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned Ugly Kid Joe. Yeah. Like, I got a I got a shout out. They have a pretty badass cover of Cats in the Cradle. Just saying, you know, it I think I think it was of covers uh concern. I think it was a pretty good one. Do you want to talk some movies? One up you on that though. There's um listen to Faith No More's cover Lionel Richie's Easy. Blow your mind. Ooh, I haven't heard their easy. I've heard their war pigs, but I haven't heard their easy now. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just as good as Lionel Richie's. And then it's just yeah. Ooh, okay, yeah. done. Yeah, uh, Faith No More was like, that was my introduction to not, I mean, some people call it metal. Some people, they're kind of like one of those genre, like genre, like benders. Like they're a little bit this, a little bit that. Mm-hmm. But like Faith No More was my introduction to like real, like hard rock. And the video for Epic blew my fucking brain. Like when I saw yeah. that for the first time. Um, let's talk some movie. What do you say? Yeah. Or movies for that matter. So when we first chatted, we're like, hey, you know, there are a few movies that I really I mean, there are a ton of movies from the 90s that I love, but three movies that I I kind of single out. Now, for the sake of time, I don't know if we'll get into all of them. Who knows? Maybe we will. Yeah. But we've we've got Days and Confused, Pulp Fiction and Friday. So yeah. what is it about those three films? Well, it's strange. So all three of those books take over the span of one day. Or all the, I call them books. They're movies. They're, they're movies, not books, but they read like a book and that. They all take place over the span of one day, um, which I think is a testament to the commitment to the subject by all the directors and the writers and so on. And I kind of like I was hitting before, it's just like in each of those, you they're all, you know, the 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 people in the movies are very different from from one of the next, but you feel like you are our experience. It's not like um I don't know. You, I, I guess if you watch Top Gun, like if you're really an adrenal, adrenaline junkie watching movies. Yeah, you kind of feel like you're with Maverick, but you know that you're not likely to sit in a back then a thirty million dollar plane and you know right. shoot a Russian right. mega out of the sky. It was more kind of a fantasy. Where I don't know. I think with Friday, you know, I've never lived in South Central or even really that bad of a neighborhood. Even when I was you know twenty two and had no money, but I feel like I like I, I totally get sitting around all day and hanging out with those guys. And same with you know Pulp Fiction with Jules and Vincent and all the other weird characters in the movie. Um. Yeah, and um, Days Confused, obviously, that's what the whole movie's about. It takes place in the last day of school in 1976. I, I Side note, I think that there should be a reboot of that movie, and it needs to take place in the 90s. And they they better not screw the music up on that. But I feel like it is, um, for the fact that Days Confused is all about the 70s and sort of the cool kids in the 70s and you know, kind of just getting a, an honest glimpse, like in, um, uh, like in, a, like in a handful of movies. It's just, you get an honest glimpse of what teenagers were really, were really like that was very different from the way teenagers were depicted in movies in the 80s but it feels like a 90s movie i mean the fact that it takes place in the 70s doesn't really matter you just feel like it's right for the time and i, I probably why i've seen that and the other two you know 
at least a couple dozen times. There's just something, um, and I don't know, uh, I, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to sit in a film class at USC if, they, if the film professors even talk about this. Talk about that kind of time-space youth continuum where people are doing more hanging out, and it's really dependent on the dialogue. But you know, they, they don't, you don't ever feel like in any of those that they don't have a plot. It's just, um, it's so realistic and relatable that all three of those movies are akin to another, akin to each other, and very much the zeitgeist of the '90s in film. I think. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, now, obviously, one of the central themes in the film, not that this is going to segue into a whole drug conversation, but drugs are a very, very specific theme that that bridges all three of those movies. And really, when you look at the 90s with the whole like war on drugs, if you will, yeah. it the, this movie is dated in a very, very specific, specific time because you have three different movies that that are that are using this theme one in the 70s versus this is the youth then versus the youth now yeah. you've got uh inner city um you know couple 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 of buddies hanging out you know outside their their their, their front you know they're on their their front lawn you know in inner city um california just you know just uh who need to scrounge up a couple hundred bucks and smoking some pot and then you've got uh Heroin, I guess, is Pulp Fiction is a drug of choice, but drugs obviously are part of that 90s zeitgeist. But it, it's not that this is what those movies were about, but it is certainly a theme and something that was very, very not to say that drugs are gone by any stretch of the imagination, but that that era, this was something that I think was was a recurring theme that was something very very specific to the landscape of what was going on in 1990s america would you agree yeah well i think that there's two things so it's it's like just as as the mainstreaming of alternative music grunge you know all the subgenres we've already talked about becoming um available you know music did the same thing that film does you know okay so yeah in the 80s it was war on drugs drugs are bad if you you know um, I think probably up to the point, up to the 90s, and maybe the very beginning of the 90s, the, probably the most honest look at drugs in America was New Jack City, which is a gangster film. And it's really like mm. how drugs can ruin your life. But, you know, for a lot of us out there, you know, who just smoke a little weed, you know, we, we don't end up in, you know, incarcerated for the rest of our lives. We don't go out and shoot our parents. We kind of knew that the war on drugs, for as much as there might have been some good meaning behind it, um, it, it failed. And so I, I feel like... Um, yeah, in the same way that music kind of became more more relatable and more realistic, we had like a real conversation about what mu what music is good and what is music about in the '90s. We did the same thing with film, and the fact uh, you mentioned that I, I kind of think of it, it didn't even it, I wouldn't say it didn't occur to me, but it's like the drugs in each of those movies are kind of incidental; they're just kind of accepted mm -hmm. parts of life. In that, yeah, there's drugs. You know, people take them. Um, they don't in every situation in life. Where every person dominate everything they do, they're around. So let's jump, stop trying to, you know, moralize everything, and let's just kind of observe life as it really happens. The way that we sort of observe music and the artistry of music, the way that it really happens in the '90s, it's very similar. Um, I just feel like there is a, a we we those three movies treat the ideal the, the topic of drugs. I think very authentically and in a mature sense versus oh, it's the boogeyman, you know. Um, right. It's very similar to what happened with music, I think. 
Yeah. And not to shit on this movie because it's one of my favorite films from that era, but it has a different approach than, say, train spotting, which yeah. the, the drug use is something that's very, very specific. And you see the consequences. This yeah. one, I mean, Mia Wallace, you know, she she ODs, but they you know, she gets an adrenaline needle. Really, the only the, the only bad thing that happens in the movie is uh, is to Marvin because they ran over a speed bump and shot him in the face. Yeah. But but yeah, like drugs in those films, it was just kind of eh, like arbitrary, not arbitrary, but that wasn't like the central uh, boogeyman of it where in obviously in a film like Train Spotting or New Jack City, you see the the greediness and the 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 bad, the the, the bad side of it and everything. Yeah. So um, well, spotting, I thought you thought that Train Spotting took place in the 80s. And at the same time, while hmm. America and the, probably both Thatcher and Reagan were talking about drugs, drugs, drugs are bad. Stay away from you. Stay away from me. You're going to you're going to be fine. You know, we, we forget that there were we kind of ignore the communities in American Britain in the 80s that had it as an everyday reality. It was, you know, for us, white people who grew up in the suburbs. It was just don't do drugs and you'll be fine. Let's have a war on drugs. Just say no. That wasn't most people's reality. I think that's where. Um, New Jack City and, and Train Spotting, they address it differently than Friday and Pulp Fiction and Days Confused. Days Confused take place in the seventies, but I think they all have a, a, a different, honest conversation about drugs. They don't ignore it. They don't tell you it's the boogeyman. Um, we see both sides of the coin, and we feel like each of those five films, like it's treated authentically. It's you're not given a line of BS that you know it's um you know if you smoke a joint you're going to end up um, being a mass murderer. We we know you know. Right. Despite what we've been taught by politicians and propagandists, that, that that's Nancy not Nancy Reagan. No, why don't no. we just like different scenes of different people in different walks of life who cross paths with drugs and they just they persist and live nonetheless? Like that's an honest conversation that you can have without hyping it up to try to influence people in an undue fashion. Yep. Uh, keeping along the the lines of similarities, something else that these three movies have in common ridiculously quotable dialogue like not yeah. just kind of quotable but like super super quotable dialogue just each movie just banger after banger of lines so i'm just curious like what of those three i imagine all of them but do you find yourself quoting any one of those i don't i don't know maybe maybe you're that's not your your speed but oh, it Totally it is. Uh, it's part of my everyday vernacular is usually referencing like a movie line or something. I apologize to all my friends daily, but this is just something that I do. So I'm no, just kind of curious. I, I my friend Mark, who I've not seen since before the pandemic, I will text him a line from Friday and he will re probably respond within five minutes. Whether it's <laughs> a, a Smokey or the Big Worm or what. Like, I think I texted him when both, you know, Ezel, the characters who played Ezel and Debo died. And uh, mm. so I was watching Elf over the holidays. I, I hadn't seen it. I think I didn't pay attention the, whole, the first time I watched it. It was the first time I watched it the whole way through for like six, eight years or whatever. So I text him like, you know, the big worm is like, is in Elf, right? You know, he's, he's the, like the annoying manager guy who's really uptight, you know, Buddy's boss. Um, I think Faison Love is the name of the actor. So yeah, I'm like that. It's, I, I don't know. Um, I guess maybe there's some movies that are just supremely quotable like Caddyshack. But I also feel like the first time I started hearing people quote Caddyshack was about 1990-91. It was just we had our minds in a different place where it wasn't just the latest Tom Cruise Schwarzenegger movie. You know, first scene something blows up. Like for whatever we we started to pay attention to dialogue and personalities of characters 
and I, again, I'm not a film professor or a sociologist, but yeah, we just started to, uh, I think maybe it was living in a, uh, a you know, a soundbite universe that, that popped up thanks to CNN and ESPN and 24 hour news. But I also feel like we, uh, you know, we started watching movies to take a little bit more away from it. Like, Hey, I really love this, you know, nothing character. Um, you know, Empire Records, I think was one that tried probably a little bit too hard with the music and the, the, the hip stuff and the pop culture of the time. I think there's probably some things that don't really work in that movie that I could talk about another day, but, um, yeah, there's like a lot of, there's a lot of little characters in that that are just kind of funny that you just latch onto that maybe don't make it, make or break the movie, but we, you know, we consume film and TV differently than we used to. And I think that's for better or worse. That's something that came out of the nineties too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you bring up empire records, uh, certainly a flawed movie and one, one that I do enjoy whenever I can get my hands on it. Just, uh, just, to, just go back and watch it. I don't think the soundtrack is particularly great. I don't think the acting, I don't think the story is particularly great, but yeah. there is something very, very, 90s about that movie there there's a nostalgia about it that i'll go back and uh, i'll certainly find a good uh, a good laugh over it same thing with like can't hardly wait actually i think can't hardly wait is brilliant 90s film um <laughs> what i did want to mention is the fact that yeah going back to the dialogue that people like within the lexicon they use they use by felicia like okay. to this day and people necessarily don't necessarily even know where that comes from, but that is, that's yeah. on Friday. So just well, something that we use arbitrarily on a day-to-day basis by Felicia comes from the movie Friday. And it fascinates me. So, no so, yeah. That was interesting. Cause I remember about 10 years ago, I'm hearing all these like, you know, millennials that I know were like, you know, eight, 10 years ago, I'm going to be saying by Felicia, by Felicia. I'm like, that was from Friday, which I've seen 20 times that I probably would say at the time. It came out in 94. So why is that popping up now? And I didn't, it didn't, I actually had to like go on the internet and look. And I didn't realize that RuPaul was saying it every, every night on. Um, oh. That's actually where it got its second life that, um, yeah, I guess it's like the weakest link goodbye. It's RuPaul's drag race. Oh my <laughs> God. No <laughs> idea. And it's by Felicia. And that's how most people, you know, who are saying it now are younger than, than me for sure are saying by Felicia. And then, you know, the, the NWA new movie came out a couple of years ago and they it resurfaced there. And yeah, so uh, it got a second life and that it's interesting how it did that. Thanks to RuPaul um, probably got uh, the writers of Friday, uh, hopefully some, some royalties out of what, however it's being used. I don't know, but um, yeah, that's the main reason it, po- it popped up again. Look, but like you're saying, like, I remember I talk about this in the class that I teach on the side. Like we all say this now, like, you, I threw. She threw me under the bus. We know what that means. Roundabout that, I, I think roughly when that came out and was starting to be used was probably around two thousand eight, two thousand nine. I remember when uh, Larry Craig, the senator from Idaho, got arrested in Minneapolis airport um, after like trying to hook up in a bathroom somewhere. Right, and, like, right. Well, that was like the foot tap, right? That was like the thing that um, that I can't remember if he was referring to the media or his party the Republican party, like that they, they threw me over the bus and backed over me. And I was like, you, that's not original that you said that, but it, to me, it, I remember hearing him say that this <clears throat> unhip old man who's a Senator from Idaho. If he's <laughs> saying it, obviously this is mainstream now. And I'd probably heard it ref- probably start to surface. I don't know, probably, I don't know, maybe 2005, maybe 2004, but then it just became commonplace now to use that obviously. So yeah, if I walk down the street, I'm like, all right, all right, all right. You know, I'm going to be in right. Austin for spring break in about two months. 
I, if I do that in Austin, people are probably going to roll their eyes and be like, dude, don't do it. I'm just saying I lived know, in Austin for another, uh, seven years. Forest, but I would say, Hey, I was alive when that movie came out. You know, like it's, it's yeah. It's, it's interesting how language is transformed by pop culture. Again, mm-hmm. whole another dissertation for a different day, but obviously movies and music help that. And um, it's, it's cool when you recognize that it, 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 you know, music and movies, they're not just things that we do and to consume to, kill time like they actually have an effect on our our culture now i know we only have just a little bit while uh left to go so what i want to do is uh unless you've got anything specific i want to run through a few like miscellaneous facts on these movies and then i want to do a little like quiz with you if uh if you got some time yep all right so some miscellaneous facts you can debunk this or if you've got anything to add on to it so friday we'll start with that Came out in 95, written by Ice Cube, and legend has it that it was written, or rather it was shot in just like two days. Yeah, I don't know that. I know that, um, yeah, I always say, I always associate 1994 in my mind, but yeah, it did come out in 95. I don't know about that. Um, Yeah, I'm kind of like oblivious to some of those technical aspects, but I think it was shot on a very low budget. and Mm -hmm. Like three and a half mil. Yeah. Um, So yeah, relatively low budget. It was uh, obviously... I mean, Ice Cube wrote it. Uh, let's see what else. Gary Gray was directed it. He was great. You know, he's, everything he was great. Gary Gray. Everything yeah, 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 absolutely. I believe he went on to direct uh, Waterfalls or did Waterfalls before this hmm. uh, TLC. Um, Michael Clark Duncan. This was like his first role that he had ever. He has uh, like a small like cameo in it. The background. That's about it. I yep. Think. Mm-hmm. Um trying to think if there's anything else that really stands out obviously everybody knows like chris tucker famously didn't do the sequel because he's like dude we it it was perfect why come back and ruin a good thing um trying to think what else stands out on friday other than it's it's a fucking laugh man like um it's like i it's like the challenge, like sit, sit in a chair for 90 minutes. And I, I dare you not to laugh because it, it really is. It's such a great nineties movie. So for this conversation, it's perfect, but yeah. there's one thing that, um, that I think was interesting. So if you ever watch any, any of the Adam McKay movies and Adam McKay was on second, hmm. he was main stage second city. When I moved to Chicago, there's a, there's a huge element of improvisation. So it doesn't matter whether you watch Ant-Man or the big short, there's like, what's two guys telling a story they talk about this thing and then they cut to that scene that's called the time dash. Um, so like, I remember, so I bumped into uh, Michael Pena this, like on Friday when I was down I in Orlando, um, was the like end of the day, the tournament's over. I go to the driving range just cause I'm, I'm from Chicago and I'm in Florida. I'm drinking a beer. I'm like, Oh, it's beautiful out. I go over to the driving range, kind of watching these guys hit golf balls. I turn my head. I'm like, Oh my God, it's Michael Pena. I'm like, Hey, how's it going? We talked for a bit. And I said to him, I was like, among other things, we're talking about Chicago. I was like, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge Marcy fan. My son's a huge Marcy fan. We really appreciate that scene you did where you're talking about the jukebox that only plays Marcy hits and then time dash. They go back to like that scene of the bar. I don't even remember what happens that, that he brings it up, but something funky happens and that's called a time dash. And that was, um, there's a lot of that in Friday where, you know, when it goes black and white, they're talking about something in the past, whether it's the bike getting stolen or something else happening. And I think those, um, yeah, we, we, it's, people who directed movies in the 90s, the better movies, seem to have a better understanding innately of storytelling. Just from dialogue, like, you know, if I see you a year from now, we could talk about when we did this <laughs> this podcast and what we talked about. And then in our minds, we're kind of going back to uh, talking about dogs for two seconds. My my dog 
fighting <laughs> on something it squeaks like you have that flashback right i don't know if that was heavily as used in the 90s or the 80s and it definitely was used in the 90s and i just think it's a testament to uh you know like dialogue and hanging out with your friends and everyday nuts and bolts stuff being much more important again not just in music you know instruments and songwriting and grunge and alternative but in in movies and that I don't know where really that came from. Why did we, the world decide to be a little bit more authentic after 1991, at least for a decade? I don't know, but the movies mm-hmm. show it. And it's an interesting anthropological thing that happened, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's a future thought. Um, there, but Friday's a great movie. So, no, no, no. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm sorry. Just one. Uh, Again, there's so much to unpack and just with a short time, there, there's only so much we can cover. I do want to say like, and I, I know people have their opinions on the film Crash, but fucking Michael Pena and Crash was just yeah. so good in, in that movie. Um, yeah. And yeah, just like just even like seeing again, we we haven't even dived into your your your, your current work and some of the uh, some of the, the the conversations that you've had, even within your own podcasting it like if we get to time, I would, I'd love to do that because holy shit, just being able well, to be like, I'll try to you, shut you, up this time and you go ahead and, and ask me some short form questions. I'll not go on for 10 minutes about the, no, 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 it's fine. But I'm like, I'm like, this guy talked to Alex Morgan. This guy has talked to like Tom Brady. Talk, I'm talking like, to her again this week, actually, Alex Morgan. I got her on the schedule for the 31st. Again. She's, she's an icon, you know, just an absolute icon. And the fact that, yeah, you've spoken to her before, like, and again, apparently, so fuck you. Um, so, hey. And I mean that with, uh, with, you know, uh, of like kudos. It's just awesome. She's just somebody that like greatly admire. Um, okay. Days and infused in 1993. So of the three, it's the, the first one to come out $8 million mm-hmm. budget, uh, Richard Link link later, obviously, um, to pair, uh, pair it with uh, Pulp Fiction. Apparently it's one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite films ever. I don't know if you have heard Is that. It- and it's also like one of the ultimate who's who before they were famous kind of films. I mean, just ridiculous, the cast that that's in this movie. Yeah, I mean, Ben Affleck, um, Mila Jovovich, uh, Matthew McConaughey. And in, in, for the indie, indie crowd, like Parker Posey still doing stuff. Yep. Um, who else? I mean, there's yeah, there's she like has, there's she, doesn't have a scene. she actually walks by. She's in the movie for like a nanosecond. But Renee Zellweger is in it for like a nanosecond. Um, you've got Adam Adam Goldberg, yeah, who not the one that did the '80s TV show, but the other Adam Goldberg, uh, which is like a whole joke on that um, that that '80s show. Adam Goldberg versus the old Adam other Adam Goldberg. Um, who else is in it? He and Anthony Rapp are both in A Beautiful Mind. They're like kind of the same characters, yeah, but they're yeah, 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 exactly. And that they're both um, in it. Uh, I think that that's, there's not too many, there's not too many. Uh, I mean, I guess there's a bunch of Jason Statham movies with a sidekick like The Rock where they're different characters, but they're kind of the same people. Mm-hmm. There's not, it's kind of hard to pull off in Hollywood, but yeah, I mean, a testament to like Linklater. I don't know if he's possibly the best movie scout of all time, or he just, you know, he's like Kevin Smith. Everybody's, everybody's cool with him. They wanted to be in the movie. Um, yeah. 8 million. And you know, it's a, it's a cult classic that became a classic. Uh, I think it's really remarkable the way that that has hung around and become such an important movie in the nineties. So yep. I love every minute of it too. And the, the, the rumor has it that the bulk of the budget really went to getting the rights for the music. It wasn't the, the talent that they use. It was the music that like just securing those rights is where 
like over 80% of the budget actually went is kind of kind of something. Yeah, supposedly the first, the opening scene with Sweet Emotion by um, Aerosmith, Aerosmith was like the most expensive two minutes movie because they paid $25,000 to get that song. Yeah. And I, I'm sure that probably what the back end is, is that Matthew McConaughey made next to nothing. I don't know. I don't know if like how royalties work, if they get royalties for every time I watch it. I hope so. Or maybe <laughs> so Ray Zell, whether she gets anything besides an uncredited, you know, credit for the movie. But yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that they, I mean, for the at least they all deserve to go on and have great careers after that movie. So, yeah, uh, Pulp Fiction. Again, another movie with like an $8 million budget. Not much of a budget. Harvey Keitel helped the movie get made. The movie grossed over $200 million, which apparently at that time was like the most successful like indie film that had ever like come across. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite like miscellaneous facts is fuck is said over 60, like 260 times in the movie, which... Which now by uh, when you compare it to other Quentin Tarantino films, that's nothing. He's only just upgraded um, his uh, his four letter terms. Um, what else? Allegedly, and I don't know if this is true, but apparently uh, rumor has it that. Quentin Tarantino had invited John Travolta over like over to his apartment and like to talk about the screenplay. But when Tra- Travolta got there. Quentin Tarantino allegedly was living in the apartment that John Travolta lived in when he was shooting Welcome Back, Cotter. So whether that's true or not, I don't know, but that is one of those urban legends that Quentin Tarantino was living in John Travolta's apartment when he shot Welcome Back, Cotter back in the 70s. Which dude, you're in my house. Kind of, pardon me? He's like, dude, you're in my house. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, like, who would have gone? But I mean, really, who in 1994 was aching to go see the next thing that John Travolta was in, unless it was nobody look, look who's talking for or whatever. Yeah. You know, um, he, 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 his career was over. I mean, really his career was after over after shoot out. He did this movie called the experts, uh, um, with like yeah. Ari Gross, uh, or gross. Um, and just, yeah, like John Travolta really didn't have much of a career. And then obviously he did look, look who's talking, but then he did like the three sequels and, uh, <laughs> Yeah, Quentin Tarantino made just a whole career of reviving dead actors' careers. Yeah, you know, whether yeah, it was Greer too after that. Pardon me, Pam Greer after that. Yeah, and, Robert yeah. Forrester as well in the same damn film. You know, like who hadn't done done much. Uh, Carradine and uh, Kill Bill. Like he, he's just he's had this whole thing. Of, we we didn't know anything about Jesse. If we had known who, like my film student roommate, probably knew who Samuel L. Jackson was, but he knew him as the guy who robbed the McDowells in Coming to America. <laughs> and, okay, he was also in Jurassic Park as some scientist who smoked, chain smoked, or yeah. whatever. Hold on, you like, oh, Samuel L. Jackson, he's a great actor. Like now, he's iconic. If he, from that film, I mean, from that and twenty other films, um, yeah, and even just the Capital One commercials. You want to watch Capital One commercials because he's on it. But yeah, that that's definitely finding a diamond in the rough. Nothing else for sure. But he, he did mm-hmm. it with a bunch of them, and yeah, so amazing. But I guess what's backed up, what backs that up, is that again, like Days Confused and and Friday, like so much of the movie is based on dialogue, and that it, it's I think a special skill or innate thing to construct your plot from dialogue. Like you're taught, you know, we're sitting here having a conversation, we're following along, and that is it's better than. Um, you know, something exploding in the background or the roof caving in or, 
uh, you know, whatever million things you, that, that you could do in film. When you have, uh, you know, you don't have any supernatural beings, maybe you have guns, you don't have a lot other than the present time and a little bit of nostalgia with the music and the soundtrack. It's, I, I think it's a special skill to be able to do that. And, I, and I'm just, I guess one of the things as a writer, maybe he had a writer's mind that we didn't, all three of the directors and writers, they had writers' minds that we didn't know that they had, and that that whole thing was undervalued up until the '90s. That's another thing mm-hmm. that I think shines through is that you can do so much with dialogue, and you don't need an explosion. I mean, yeah, they used some violence and some different things to to make the plot more exciting and turn up the uh, intensity. But the groundwork was laid before any gun was fired or any you know fight scene happened. It's just um, an amazing what. Amazing thing what all these people did with just, you know, characters talking to each other and being who they were. Yeah. All right. I want, to, I want to play two quick games with you. So if you've ever seen the DVD or the VHS on Pulp Fiction, there's this famous deleted scene. Uh, and it's Uma Thurman or rather Mia Wallace interviewing Vincent Vega, a.k.a. John Travolta, mm-hmm. about like the kind of like the, the either or scenario. So this famous deleted scene where... Mia Wallace says, there's two kinds of people in this world, Elvis people and Beatles people. Mm-hmm. Now, Beatles people can like Elvis and Elvis people can like Beatles, but nobody likes them both equally. Somewhere along the line, you have to make a choice. And that choice tells you who you are. So I want to pl- p- play a couple scenarios. I'm going to give you two options and you have to yeah. tell me who you are. All right. And we're going to keep this 90s focused. All right. So Focus on the 90s right now. Got it. East Coast or West Coast? Rap. Um, I, you know, I'm definitely an East Coast personality, but I like the West Coast a lot. But I'd have to say East Coast, whether it's, um, you know, pizza or, you know, the, the pace of how I talk. I'm definitely more East Coast than West Coast. But I'm working Hip-hop. on it. What? Hip-hop? What about Hip-hop, yeah, definitely, for sure. East Coast, okay. Yeah. Uh, grunge or ska? Hmm. I mean, I'm probably a little bit more ska, but more, um, you know, I'm not, when I say ska, don't, don't think that I'm talking about sublime. I'm talking about like, right. no, no, no. I've seen the English beat before, you know, I've never, unfortunately never seen like the specials or selector. I'm a little, I guess I was, was a little young when they were around. Um, but I love like old ska from, um, you know, Jamaica and, and London and so on. So I'd have to say mm-hmm. that, but I mean, that's a great grunge out there too. Stone I own, pilot. Pair, I own a pair oh. of wingtips that are blue and brown. I think that's probably the kicker yeah, there. Yeah, that says it all. That says it all right there. Uh, Stone Temple Pilots creep or Radiohead's creep? Hmm. Probably, I mean, I'm not a Stone Temple Pilots super fan, but um, I think Radiohead's brilliant, and I think the Benz is a brilliant album, but sometimes they annoy me without sadness. I'm definitely a type A personality. <laughs> I don't like to whine, so just by that, I'm not going to say Radiohead all uh STP, you know, mm-hmm. I probably no, there, there's, you know, again, it's just, it's it, all it's doing is defining who you are as a person. So your response is, is letting right. everybody know who you are of no pressure. No, um, uh, to use sports. Cause I know you're big into sports as well. Team of the nineties, Yankees or Cowboys, by the way, this is a trick question because the correct answer is the Bulls. Well, I'm from Philadelphia. So I say, fuck the Cowboys. You know, oh. I, I I can't ever say anything. Team of the nineties is Chicago Bulls. That's There's, what I'm saying. That's what I'm like. Yankees or Cowboys? Neither. It's the Bulls. Yeah, Bulls are the team of the nineties. Until 1996, so they lost the first half of the nineties, and and yeah, 
But it is cool that the last time the Cowboys won the Super Bowl was in the 90s. So um, once you celebrate, it's been a long time. <laughs> Shots fired. Um, all right. Now, this one is probably, you know, I'm, I'm going to throw it out at you because, you know, maybe, maybe you watched it. Maybe you didn't. If not, I've got a backup for you. But if I say Kelly Kapowski or Jesse Spano, does that resonate to you? Was Kelly Kapowski on Saved by the Bell? Yes. And what, what was the other name? Jesse Spano. Same show. It was just your your choice of the, the two girls on Saved by you the know, Bell. I'd, I'm not trying to be too cool for this, but I, I definitely would have watched that show. And if I... No, yeah, no. I say like I wouldn't, wouldn't admit that I watched the show. I just didn't watch that show. So, All right, yeah, then how about this one? Um... Uh, you wouldn't have watched that either. I'm just trying to use, I'm just trying to pair 90s girl versus 90s girl. Um, Go ahead, fire away. Maybe I do know who they are. Pamela Anderson versus Yasmin Bleeth. Uh, I think Yasmin Bleeth probably. Again, I didn't okay. watch that show, but you know, dark hair, blue eyes, something about that. I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, last one. No, no, no. That that was it. That was it for that one. Final game. This is just a quiz, like to go back to the films that we talked about. Again, yeah. Friday, Days of Confused, Pulp Fiction. Who said fuck? That's the that's the game that we're gonna play. You're gonna have to tell me who said it and which film. So right. I'll give you I'll give you an easy one right now. English, motherfucker. Do you speak it? Uh Jules said that. Jules, Pulp Fiction, correct. Played by Pulp Fiction, played by Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if it's worth five dollars, but it's pretty fucking good. That was uh, I, I don't know if it's worth five dollars, but it's pretty fucking good. What 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 movie? Are you asking me which of those movies? Yep. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a link later line. I almost had like a slacker mm. flashback, but it's I, I I kept with Pulp Fiction. That one was Vincent Vega. That was a five dollar milkshake. Oh, milkshake, yeah, yeah, yeah. The five dollar milkshake. I don't know if it's worth five dollars, but it's pretty fucking good. Um, right. Here we go. Remember it. Write it down. Take a picture. I don't give a fuck. Yeah, that was from Friday. That was from Friday. That's correct. That was Smokey. Mm-hmm. Um, here, I, I I can't even say it without laughing and kind of giving it away. Imagine how many people out there are fucking right now, man. Just going yeah, at it. That's days confused. That's Slater at the top of the moon tower. <laughs> that's Slater at the top of the moon tower, yeah. exactly. And then right after that, he tells Wiley Wiggins, like, yeah, the other word has the kid like fell down, hit his head on every rung. I hear it doesn't hurt after the first, <laughs> the first two. How many beers you have? Oh, you're dead, man. You're so dead. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then lastly, this is kind of like a, an abbreviated quote, because if I would have started from the beginning, it would be obvious, but we'll just say peer pressure is a motherfucker. Hmm. I don't know. Um, I would guess that's probably from uh, days confused, but it's Friday. It's Craig. It's Craig saying yeah. that he says something. Uh, I forget. He starts off with smoky, uh, and then he's peer pressure is a motherfucker, but oh. Um, but that kind of like segues into this, this final, final portion. What, because again, dialogue is, uh, for my own sensibilities and things that I enjoy about all three of these movies is the quotability and the dialogue. Do you have any, any favorite lines that stand out that, that you, you think about, or you hear the line that takes you back to a, maybe it's a specific memory or whatever. 
From from those movies or just in general? Yeah, from the from those three specifically. I, you know, I find myself a lot of times. It doesn't matter if my like my kid who's sixteen is leaving the house, or you know, I'm uh, I'm just like chickulator, chickulator. It's the guys are in the car. You can't even really see their faces, but um, yeah, Slater goes, "All right, man, check you later," and then Don starts making fun of chickulator, chickulator. Says never get shotgun. Full side comment about like how you talk to women and so on, which I can't believe that any of them were smooth with the way they talk to women. But yeah, I, that's I don't. I, there's so the thing is that there's so many quotes that I, I think a, I think of a landscape of quotes when I think of those movies, and I kind of find myself kind of dilly dallying around like different parts of the movie as as if it was like if I was going to walk around my neighborhood, what corner would I walk across first to get a get a can of beer, or, you know, get a slice of pizza or whatever. Um, yeah, it's kind of a roadmap of the nineties. Um, you know, I don't have flashbacks because I didn't drop any ass in the nineties, but if I did, I'm sure that I probably have more flashbacks from those movies and stuff that probably actually really happened. So mm-hmm. now Andy, what do you work what do you what do you what are you doing these days? Where what are you working on? Yeah, you know, um I, I write for Forbes as a freelance um you know contributor. I basically write for the sport, the sports money pages we call it. So a lot of my uh stories are cross section between what an athlete or retired sports legend is doing with what, you know, what they used to do on the field. So, uh, yeah, I, I spent uh, the weekend pretty much at the golf tournament, uh, HGV tournament champions, got to meet a bunch of great people and see some great golf. Uh, like I said, I'm talking to Alex Morgan in a week. I think, uh, she's working on a Super Bowl pr- promotion. Um, yeah, I got just like, a you know, uh, talked to John Lester, the pitcher for the Cubs, um, who's retired now, man, I shook his hand. I knew he was big, but it's, it, he's got the firmest handshake I think I've ever shown. I mean, like, he's he's, big he's, you know, yeah, he's he's not the biggest dude, but I mean, he's freaking strong. So I talked to him about plays golf and why he loves golf. And same thing with um, got to talk to Jeremy Roenick, who played for both the Blackhawks and the Flyers. And he had a really great game. And then I talked to Roger Clemens, you know, who should be a Hall of Fame pitcher. Um, anyway, he's a, you know, he's a seven time Cy Young winner, won a bunch of World Series. You know, just had like conversations with these guys about just kind of shooting the breeze with them, like I do, like I am with you. And that's how I try to do it. I try to keep it very conversational and then write about kind of what they're engaged in now. So, um, like, kind of one of my biggest things I got to do in the last year is around about a year ago, I got to interview Tom Brady right when he was launching the Brady brand, um, which was awesome. And he was, it's funny, like, my, my friends who hate the Patriots and don't like Tom Brady, like, was he a douchebag? And I was like, well, no, I mean, he wasn't a douchebag. He was super cool. He was nice. We talked about his career, his brand, the stuff he's doing. I mean, I'm not going to ask him about his wife and kids or anything personal, but um, was just like a straightforward down to, down to earth dude. And um, yeah, that's how I try to do it. I don't think I've ever had any professional athletes um, be a jerk. I yeah. mean, I don't ask questions to try to elicit that. But yeah, I mean, that's what I do. I, I write about um, athletes and just kind of depict them as the real people that they are when you get to know them, I suppose, or when you have a conversation that's very authentic and down to earth. And uh, beyond that, I'm trying to figure out which, which uh, I've got a couple ideas for a couple different books. I'm trying to figure out which one I, I might write next. Um, well, side note, a long time ago, a friend of mine uh, who's a writer, we had this conversation, like, I think we were both in IT. I was in technology for a while. And we said, there needs to be a book, a book about, or no, there needs to be a movie about our life as help desk people, like fixing printers and finding why so we can't turn their screen on, but, but like have Chris Tucker be in it called help desk and they never made that movie they never put a movie uh they never made a movie about technology 
uh, especially not one with Chris Tucker in it. So I thought, no. you know, maybe I'll write that book. I, I'm not going to get Chris Tucker to, you know, sit with me and help me write him into the story. But yeah, I'm thinking about writing a book about help, help desk because it was, I, you know, it was great times. Just like listening to music in the 90s was great times. I had some great times doing this, you know, kind of like podunk job holding people's hands in technology when technology was the, like the new thing in the late 90s. So that's something I'm working on as long as well as a, a couple of uh, other sports related ideas. So uh, I guess I got to figure out which one I'm feeling most strongly about. But yeah, I'm always writing, always trying to write, always going to interview great people. I uh, got a pretty good life, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I uh, Again, I kind of hate you. I mean, you, you're you uh, freelance with Forbes. You've done work with ESPN. You've done work with Rolling Stone. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it seems like it's a horrible crux to bear, let me tell you. Yeah, I got you know laid off and fired from a lot of business jobs. So I mean, I'm probably the worst uh, corporate employee in the world. But, <laughs> but having uh, kind of three part time jobs doing this stuff is probably ideal for me. So um, yeah, yeah so but I mean, like in the spring, I was out there. Um, in, in this fall, I was like hawking my book at the local farmers market. Of course, like one where all the people my age who are still love, you know, Gen X uh, '90s music live. You know, had, had a good couple Saturdays just kind of selling the book uh, out and about, but. Yeah, so um, just trying to you know keep doing what I'm doing and can't complain about what I get to do for a living. It's pretty awesome. I love it. My my, my final question, uh, just for the this whole uh, this is a shitty final question, but I'm just kind of curious. Just of all the people that you yourself have interviewed, who surprised you? Whether they were humbling, whether they were funny, whether yeah. they were just honest. Like who's somebody that you've interviewed that you're like shit? That was that was way more interesting than I ever or funnier or insightful than I would ever anticipated. Yeah, it's probably too. Like, so I, you, you gather that I talk a lot. Um, I've interviewed Billie Jean King twice and she talks way more than I do. And both times I've interviewed her, her comms people come on about 15 minutes into it. And they're like, um, we got to wrap it up here. <laughs> she needs to go. And then Billy has said, no, 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 we're having a conversation here. Like, so, so Andy, what did you, what, what were you talking about? Like, so like, she doesn't care about, the time limits or who she's got to talk to on the phone. She just want to have a conversation. Um, actually, the last time I talked to her was the day, actually the day of Serena's last match. It was the afternoon and then Serena played her last match that Friday evening. Um, and then there's a guy, there's a guy who was a lifer pitcher for the Cardinals named Adam Wainwright. All right. Yeah. So I'm a, a reasonably socially liberal, you know, Cubs fan who lives in Chicago on the North side and I don't eat meat. I'm kind of a vegetarian. And I'm talking to this guy who's born in Georgia, who's a lifer with the Cardinals, who's a meat eater, definitely. I think he's pretty conservative. He doesn't tweet about politics or anything. We have nothing in common. I talked to this guy a couple uh, summers ago, probably maybe the summer 18. I remember I went to the Pearl Jam concert that night at Wrigley, the last one. And I talked to this guy about like barbecue for 20 minutes, in addition to like the Cardinals and baseball and how much he hates the Cubs and uh, interesting side story. Like he, he'll trade texts with John Hamm, the actor, because John yeah. Hamm is a huge Cards fan. Like, Huge enough that he'll come to St. Louis and like take the whole forty man roster out to dinner and like <laughs> the, day of the game when they play the Cubs, which which helped, you know, that was a great thing to throw in my story. So I really had nothing in common with this guy, but I mean we had a great conversation for probably like a half an hour about, you know, I gave him a reference to uh next time you're in Cincinnati, go to this barbecue place that my kid loves, you know, like ribs the size of your head. Um, he talked about, you know, different things that he learned trying to be humble as a Cardinals player. Like when I like I talked to you all day about baseball, but you know, when, when um, Bob Gibson would walk into the 
clubhouse, you stop you stop dorking around and goofing around, and the room gets silent because it's mm-hmm. legend there. So yeah. that are these big names in sports can be humble too, you know, or they can be super conversational and silly, and you want to have a beer with them like Billie Jean King. So I mean, that's those are two of probably twenty that I could talk about that were just surprisingly awesome. But yeah, I think if I, I would think that. Yeah, you know, if you get the chance to interview, you know, directors and so on in, in your pursuit here with your with your podcast. I mean, you talk to people like the real people, great things happen. I think um that's something that I've always tried to follow and I never get like investigative reporter on somebody or nosy right. and it's just stick to conversation. I just want to kind of know what kind of people they are and then you know, you get gifts in your interview and your time with them. And I think that's the best way to do it. I think that's as good of a segue as any to uh, wrap this one up. Is there anything that you want to close out on um, where people can find you, where people can find the novel? Yeah. uh, So uh, books, 90s and 90s, a rock and roll time travel story. Uh, Obviously, if you're connected on Amazon, you get it, you know, point click on Amazon. And um, if you want to sign copy, you can go to my website, 90daysin90s.com. I'll uh, sign it for you. Send some swag uh, along with it. And you get a copy signed by me if if that's a, at all pleasing, but yeah, I've had, I've had a couple people ask about audiobooks. I've not done an audiobook. There's, I, you know, I guess I'm a little old fashioned, you know, read it, read it on your Kindle or read it, uh, you know, with, with in the paperback form, you probably get a lot, a lot more out of it. So yeah, you'll find me there. Um, on Twitter, I'm on at sporty fry. That's fry with an E. And if I'm not making fun of George Santos right now, I'm probably tweeting about music or sports. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Again, Andy Fry, thank you so much. It was an absolute honor being able to chat with you. Um, I'll, I'll just say it again. 90 Days in the 90s was a fun read. Thank you for putting that in my hands. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I've enjoyed this conversation. If you ever want to come back and take a deep dive into any one specific, because everything we talked about was very, very surface level. We covered yeah. like eight different subjects very, very quickly. I know we're just over an hour in conversation, but I just wanted to get as much into the uh into the um i don't know the potosphere as possible so thank you for for this conversation thanks a lot man thanks for having me on and again thank you so much for uh for andy fry for hopping on the show i had so much fun thank you everybody that that listened over the past hour i know we went through all of that rather quickly but there was just so much to talk about and we had just an hour to get into it so we're going to try to have Andy back in the, in the, in the near future and we'll, we'll try to keep this conversation going or take a deep dive into another 90s film. But hopefully you enjoy this conversation, I'll say, half as much as, as I did. If, 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 you, if you did that, then this certainly was a success because this, this is something that I'm extremely, extremely passionate about. If you can't already tell by the amount of times I'm repeating the words that I'm using, but I did. I had had a great time, and certainly check out his novel "90 Days in the 90s." And he also let you know where you can find him on social media and his website. And if you are still listening, please do myself a favor. Do myself, uh, please do me a favor and make sure that you are subscribed to the, this podcast and like, rate it, review it, tell your friends, share it on social media whatever it is, visit my website, stampercinema.com. Anything else? Check out the show notes. And um, yeah, that's it. We're just going to wrap this one up. Please enjoy your week. We will see you next time. And I've got another great episode coming out 
and we're going to have John back, and we're going to talk about all things 90s, not just a few movies, but we're going to talk about the whole freaking decade. So be on the lookout for that. We'll see you next time on another episode of Stand Up Cinema. Cinema.